We've talked about, in this series, the book of Ephesians. It's an important book for us because this church was founded in a great revival. The church, 20 years later, Paul had to write to because it was threatening to fly all apart. And then they must have had another revival. We're here 20 years later, and I don't think we're threatened about flying all apart, but we're here 20 years later, and I think it's important for us to revisit our vision and our mission. Because 40 years later, Jesus will come to this church, and they're doing all the right things, but they've lost their passion, and they've lost their love for Jesus Christ. And so Jesus warns them, if you don't return to your first love, I'm going to remove your candlestick. And that's why it's so important that we understand certain things like I shared with you in communion this morning. We can't ever substitute good doctrine. We need that. We can't ever substitute good order. We need that. We can't substitute symbolism. We need that passion and that first love for Jesus Christ. Those flames, those white-hot flames in our hearts, they need to always be burning. So this morning, we've talked about the plan. We've talked about the blessing. I want to talk to you because this next passage just reads, leads us right into the church. And there's no one message where you could hope to preach everything about the church. So I'm just going to take this portion of Scripture where the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians some important truths and elements about the church. Church can be very confusing. I talked this morning for just a few moments about how we don't have a lot of ritualism. We don't have a lot of formalism. Matter of fact, our church is pretty low-key, and our church is pretty unstructured, and yet once in a while, folks will come to worship with us, and they'll say, oh, your church is so much more structured than our church is. And I think, really? If you got any more unstructured than what we are, I, I just, it's hard for me to think about that. And then I go to other churches, and I was visiting one church just recently, and they were walking me through all the order that their denomination requires and everything that they do, and um, I was kind of impressed with all these things they do, and I said, does this really mean anything? He goes, it means something to us that understand it. It's why our church is dying. We just don't have many people coming. Then I was listening to... Uh, a news personality this week on the television talked about their faith and how they came to know Jesus Christ and what God had touched and done in their lives and how they'd been born again. And they said, and this is kind of code, they said in the interview, they asked him about church, and they says, well, I grew up in a really structured church, and that's kind of why I left. And I just got to be honest with you, I love going to my church because it's a praise and worship Jesus. They just make a big deal about Jesus Christ. And I went, yes, I want us to make a big deal about Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? Let's one more time. Let's make a big deal about Jesus Christ. Let's give him a hand of praise this morning. And let's make a big deal. One of the men in our church has already gone to heaven, and it was my honor to preach his funeral. We both loved the Cajun humorist Justin Wilson. And I've preached all through that part of the country. I love etouffee. There's nothing like good fried crawfish. There's nothing like Cajun food. It's just so good. 
and you'll enjoy it for two or three days after you eat it, and you just have to be there and be a part of it. But Justin Wilson was telling about one of his buddies that he grew up with. His buddy was a a member of a Protestant church, and Justin went to a Catholic church, and he says, we were friends Monday through Saturday, but on Sunday we were enemies. So our mothers got together and decided it would be good for us if we went and visited each other's church. He said, so he came to my church, and I explained to him what the robes meant. I explained to him the mass. I explained everything that we did. And the next Sunday, I went to his church, and he told me about the songs that they sang and everything that they did in their church. And he says, and when the pastor got up to preach, he says, the pastor took off his watch, and he laid it on the pulpit just like that. And he says, what does that mean when the pastor takes off his watch? He says, not a darn thing, not a darn thing. And so this morning, taking off my watch, it just means I'm not going to stop till I get finished this morning. So would you stand with me? And we want to go to the Word of the Lord this morning. And I want to read to you Genesis, excuse me, Genesis, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Now, just a little background. For you and I, this may not carry the same impact that it carried on the early Christians because we haven't grown up in a country that has had a hostility between Jews and Gentiles the way it would have happened in the Bible. There are countries, you know from watching the news in the Middle East, where that happens every day. But there were reasons for that, and Paul's addressing that here. He said, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it only affected their bodies and not their hearts. Circumcision was a mark of the people of God. It was a mark of having given yourself to God, following God. And, but just being circumcised wasn't the big deal. The heart had to be touched. The heart had to be changed. That's what Paul's addressing here. In those days, you were living apart from Christ, speaking about all of us before we knew Jesus. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from, read it with me, citizenship among the people of Israel, and you didn't know the covenant promises that God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. Now, don't let that pass you by. You lived in this world without God and without hope. I can't imagine a life like that. I thank God I've never known a life like that, a being without God, not knowing who God was, and therefore having no hope. But now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ. For Christ Himself has brought peace to us, He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. If I'd have read you all of the passage from Matthew just now, when Jesus died on the cross, that very same passage tells us that there was a veil in the temple that was rent in two, torn from top to bottom. That wall of hostility that separated Jews and Gentiles, he tore that apart. And how did he do this? He did this by ending the system of law with his commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. 
and our hostility toward each other was put to death. Now, friends, that was seismic. That was beyond a 10-point scale earthquake in their thinking, in the world's thinking. It would be like peace today between all of the Israelis and Israel and all of their enemies that surround them. It would be like peace between Catholics and Protestants in Ireland. It would be peace between North Korea and the United States. I mean, this is seismic, so don't let this pass you by and go, I don't understand this. You can't understand this. This is important to our faith this morning. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility was put to death, and he brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now, all of us can come to the Father. All of us have access. All of us can come to the Father through God through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. It's what we celebrate in the communion. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. It means you have hope. You know God. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's, read it with me, family. And together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made a part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to electrify our hearts. I ask you for that mysterious something that touches us and helps us to hear and be changed and transformed. I ask you for that anointing, Lord, that we behold wonderful things as the psalmist prayed, that we are filled with wonder. We leave full of wonder at what Christ has accomplished at Calvary. And we leave filled with wonder not at a denomination, whether it's Assemblies of God or Baptist or Lutheran, Presbyterian or Catholic, we believe filled with wonder at this supernatural something you have built called the church. And I pray this morning that you would come in all of your Shekinah glory and fill each and every heart here today. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. It's always been amazing to me how that we build so many walls that separate us. I've met people over the years, and I've had to sit with families over the years. They didn't want their children to live in this part of the country because they were afraid they would marry somebody from that part of the country. I've had parents come in more than once when God has called their son or daughter to ministry. And I recall one mother slamming her fist on my desk and saying, it will be over my dead body that my son goes into the ministry because she had greater ambitions and higher aspirations in her thinking. And she nearly destroyed his faith. I've had people tell me, I don't want to be a part of this kind of church because 
of the multi-ethnicity of the church. I'm afraid that my child might fall in love with someone that is not of our race or ethnicity. We human beings, since the fall, we've been great at building walls. We've been great at putting up structures that divide us and separate us. Sometimes we do that through education. Sometimes we do that through economics. Sometimes we do that through racism. Sometimes we do that even through religion. I don't know, but I've been told that the Great Wall of China that is 4,000 miles long, a little over 4,000 miles long, that you can see it from space. And it's amazing that the human structure that you can see from outer space, it's not a house or a dwelling, but it's a wall to separate people, to put up a dividing line. We're in a time in our country where there are people who really sincerely believe whether right or wrong, I don't know, I have no opinion on the issue, that we need a wall between us and Mexico. And it's become a major battle. It's become a major fight. It was a part of a Supreme Court nomination hearing this week about a wall being built to separate us. As a Christian, when I read my Bible, it's easy for me to see how that Christ has come and tore down those walls. And it's important for us to understand this passage in Ephesians has a lot to do with demolishing and destroying walls. Because in the temple, and the Jews would have been familiar with this, and Gentiles living there would have been familiar with it, there was a court of the Gentiles where you could watch and you could see what was happening. You were not allowed to participate as you just did in communion. You were not allowed to participate in the prayers, participate in the sacrifices. You were not allowed to participate in the worship of God. Now, you could become an observant Jew and be brought into the family, but even there, you would still have a wall of separation because you were not racially a Jew. And for Gentiles, we've excavated them from there at the temple where the temple stood. And there's one of these tablets on display in a museum in Istanbul, Turkey. There's another one on display in Germany, and I think there's one more on display in London, England. And there were these, these tablets that were excavated that simply said, and Josephus refers to them in his writings. Josephus was a Jewish historian that worked for the Romans. Josephus even recorded this, that there was a plaque there that's on the wall that says, Gentiles cannot pass. If you pass, you are responsible for your own death. I grew up in a part of the country where there were walls. There were colored restrooms and there were white restrooms. There were colored places for people of color to sit. There were colored places for people to even sit in our churches. I can remember, although that was never part of the church that I grew up in, I can remember going to visit a church where colored people were not allowed to sit in the sanctuary with everybody else, but they had to sit in a balcony distant from that. I can recall a time where my dad furiously arguing with a service station attendant at a Teneco gas station because the colored restroom was out of order and the man would not allow the, 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 the black man to take his son into the bathroom to urinate and he had to cover his son. It seared into my memory because I thought there was going to be a fight as he covered his son while he urinated behind the building. We build these walls that separate us. You can go to the Greenfield Museum and you can see the bus where Rosa Parks said she would not sit on the back of a bus. And somehow or another, even Christians were willing to buy into those walls. We were somehow or another willing to put those up and try to sanctify them. Karl Barth stood up against the Nazis in Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood up against the Nazis of Germany. Dietrich paid with his own life. Billy Graham personally left the platform and went down 
to the chagrin, the horror, and great anger of the fundamentalist Baptist in Atlanta, Georgia, and he removed the cord and ropes that separated black and white Christians from worshiping together and said he would not preach in a situation like that. I can remember him being talked about. Today, friends, I'm here to declare to you there are some walls that are good. There are some walls that are right. We need walls when it comes to clarity to say what we believe about God and about Jesus Christ and about the Bible. We need walls that say what we believe about marriage and what we believe about human sexuality. We need laws that speak to about what we believe about stewardship. But the problem is that we often want to leap over the walls of faith that God has given us and we want to build walls of our liking that could be walls of economic or education or social walls or racial walls and God looks at that and tells us you will not box me in you will not do that because what Christ wants to be seen in the church of the Lord Jesus is not a white church, black church Asian church, Hispanic church Christ wants to be seen in the body of Christ the manifested presence of the Holy Spirit here can you say amen to that that's what Jesus wants to be seen at Woodland He could care less about our educational level. He could care less about our financial levels. He could care less about all of that. What Jesus wants from the church is that people are able to see the love of God and the power of God in us. Theologians have wrestled with a question that I remember we had to wrestle with when I was in junior high school, and that is, which comes first? Say it with me if you know it. The chicken or the... Well, theologians have often wrestled with that question, and I have to tell you, we've not come up with any more satisfactory answer than you've come up with the chicken or the egg. And which comes first, that people are reconciled to God or they're reconciled to one another? For Jesus says your sins won't be forgiven unless you forgive one another, but at the same time, we can't have reconciliation with one another until we are reconciled with God. My simple answer is, when you are truly reconciled to Jesus Christ, you will be reconciled to one another. Can you say amen to that? That's the amazing supernatural work that God does inside of us. It's an important word to remember, supernatural. Because God has given the resources, the authority, and the power to the church that is made up of people who are deeply different from one another. Go ahead and put that up on the screen, please. God has given us the resources, the power, and the authority to the church of members who are made up deeply different from one another. And I know that's a much longer statement than what I usually give you to write down, but I only gave you two words to put in there. Because what I want you to see is the deep difference that can exist between the people of God. Jews and Gentiles were as different as they could be from one another. Jews and Gentiles were as different as their lives could be. And you remember when we were preaching through the book of Acts, of how that there were some Pharisaical Christians that wanted the Gentiles to adopt the Jewish lifestyle and adopt all the Jewish laws. And the church wrote a letter. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to them, the Bible says, of only observing the spirit of the law. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, but fulfill the law. What did he fulfill? He fulfilled the 
the sacrificial part of the law. He fulfilled the ceremonial part of the law. He fulfilled in his life and his sacrifice for us what the sacrifices meant. When God poured out upon Jesus everything that we deserve for our sins, he fulfilled the ceremonial part of the law as Jesus went to the cross and he fulfilled all of those types and shadows that the sacrifices represented. But he taught us that the moral law, the spirit of the law, he taught us this in the Beatitudes, was deeply different than being legalistic. We had to love one another from deep within ourselves. We had to love our enemies even as God loves us. We had to be broken about the condition of this world. He taught us how important that the spirit of the law was. And God gives us those resources and those power because he knew we are different from one another. And this congregation, we're different. There are some of you, you wouldn't enjoy hanging out with me because I like to hike, I like to run, I like to bike, I like to read books, and I like really good, strong coffee. I don't want to see the spoon when I put it down in there to stir it up. I want it to be black, black, black. Anybody agree with me, say amen. Anybody that disagrees with me, you say amen. amen. You see, we're deeply different from one another. You're wrong and I'm right. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> Recently, or just before I left on my sabbatical, I met a young man in our community. I won't call his name because he's a part of our community. And, but when I saw him, he was all tattooed up. He had stuff hanging off his skin. And, and I looked at him and I thought, fresh meat. And I thought I was going to share my story with him. And I just kind of whispered a prayer. And I was going to go over and talk to him. And I just prayed for him and prayed that the Lord would give him an open heart to meet me. And when I went over and I introduced myself to him, he gave me the strangest name he'd ever gotten, I'd ever heard. I said, where'd you get that name? He says, well, I changed my name. And he told me about that. And then he started witnessing to me. And he told me about how Jesus Christ had saved him. And he was born again. And he goes to a conservative Bible preaching church. And I walked away blessed because I realized I had sinned. I looked at this tattooed, body-pierced guy and made some assumptions. He's my brother in the Lord. And I wanted you to know something. We are deeply different from one another. Deeply different from one another. But God gives us the resources. He gives us the power. He gives us the authority to love each other. And I'm telling you that the Holy Spirit makes us as a church, makes Woodland as a church, capable of living like this, loving like this, serving like this. We don't always execute on that very well. But that's what God gives us the ability to do. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. You see, the church is a supernatural work. The church is not a human organization. It's not a religious organization. This is not a religious meeting we are having today. This is a supernatural meeting that we're having. We are here in the presence of God Almighty, and everything has been put under Jesus' feet when he rose again from the dead. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered hell. The devil is defeated, and you are a part of the body of Christ, and what is underneath the feet of Jesus is underneath our feet today. The devil has no authority in your life. He has no authority in your marriage or your home or in this church. Can we praise him again this morning for that? <laughs> Hallelujah. You see, it's supernatural. 
We can't claim that on our own. We can't overcome those differences on our own. We can't make these kind of peaceful relationships on our own. I love reading the biographies of great diplomats and people who have worked for peace and strove for peace, and the world is more dangerous today than it has ever been before because there is no peace until, first of all, that supernatural something happens when we are reconciled to God and we are reconciled to one another and we dare not build walls that God has not built. You're my brother, you're my sister in the Lord, and our Father is the same. Can you say amen? The second thing I want you to see is that, thank you for that amen over there. Don't tell her to be quiet. Let her amen with me. The church is a supernatural community. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, there is an increasing intensity of intimacy. I was quite proud of myself for that alliteration, so I want you to say that with me. There is an increasing intensity of intimacy. I almost forgot my own phrase. Say that with me. Increasing intensity of intimacy. Say it one more time. Increasing intensity of... In I'm messing up. Increasing intensity of intimacy. As I read this passage, I kept looking at it and says, God, what are you saying to us here? Citizens, family, temple. And at first I thought, well, temple, that's kind of a letdown. And then the more I just studied and looked at the words and prayed, suddenly those three words formed in my mind. Increasing intensity of intimacy. Let me help you see that this morning. Because what you see is a passionate God, a passionate God in love with his people, in love with you. And sometimes we say the love of God and we just kind of let it roll off our tongue without it really touching our hearts. But I want you to hear me this morning. God is passionate about you. When you look at that cross, you don't see just the wrath of God poured out upon sin you see the love of God being poured out upon you that God gives to you what Jesus deserved and Jesus received what you and I deserved from God. Amen? First of all, we're citizens. In our community here of faith at Woodland Church, we're citizens of many different communities and towns. Brownstown, Flat Rock, Woodhaven, New Boston, Taylor, Birmingham, people who come to our church all the way from Birmingham, we have people that come from a 50-mile radius around us. We have people who come from Toledo, Ohio to worship with us. We're members, some, of different states. We have people in our congregation who are not even citizens of the United States. They are citizens of other countries. You see, we understand citizenship. When Becky and I were taking young people overseas, and we were going to places like Paraguay and Argentina and Uruguay. We were going to Colombia and Brazil or Belgium and France and Germany. We would have T-shirts. We would have them made up. And T-shirts, whatever city we were going to in their language, that Jesus loves this city, Jesus loves this town. And we'd have an American flag and their flag. And people would often come up to us thanking us because they, they saw this connection, that it wasn't citizenship that mattered. It was our citizenship in heaven. We go into places in 
I can remember our college students and high school students would just be blown away when elderly citizens of Belgium, for instance, would come up and take their hands and kiss their hands over and over and say, go home and thank your parents, thank your family for having come and fought the Nazis and liberated us. There are three little wooden eggs in my office that are there that was made by a Nazi slave named Andre. He was bought from his home country in Central Europe as a slave to work in the Nazi war machine and left in Belgium. He was tortured for his faith. He was punished and he was forced to do things that he would refuse to do and they put him in prison. Somehow or another he survived and was liberated by our GIs during D-Day when they came across Europe. And he would just weep and he would cry and I'd been in his home and I've had dinner in his home. I baptized members of his family. You see, we were, they were thankful for what you had done, we had done as a nation. But he was even more thankful, Andre was, when Jesus Christ saved him from his sins, washed him free of his sins and changed his life. And today his son, Baldwin Galadiente, is a passionate follower of Jesus Christ and is pastoring in the Assemblies of God Church in Liège, Belgium. Everything changes when you become a citizen of heaven. Can you say amen this morning? God takes bitter hearts and makes them tender hearts. We are citizens, yes, of America. We are citizens of whatever country you're from. But the Bible says we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. But then the Bible also says we are members of God's family. We are members of God's family. God adopted us. God is no longer just my boss. He is that. God is no longer just my Lord. He is that. God is no longer just my king. He is that. But my boss and my Lord and my king has adopted me into his family. He is my father. And I don't come to him like some oriental grand potentate or grand poopa, all fearful and trembling. I don't come before him like some medieval king of England saying, I only am here because of your divine right, O king. I come to him because I am adopted into his family this morning. I I'm not just a citizen. I am a son of God. You are a daughter of God. We are the family of God. The Bible says we are members of God's family. Can we give him a hand of praise for that? Don't let that escape you. Don't let that escape you that you are members of the family of God. It means I have brothers and sisters. You're my brother, Bill. You're my sister, Faye. Tim, you're my brother. Carolyn, you're my sister. I can't see you for Carrie's head. There you are. I just knew anybody sitting that close to Tim had to be Carolyn. I look back here, and I look at you. You're my brothers and my sisters in Christ. I look at you, and I go, I love you. You're my family. Some of you that I don't know, if you've been born again and you name Jesus as your Lord, you're my brother, you're my sister. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.15, God's family. Who is God's family? God's family is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Who is God's family? It's the church. All believers, regardless of denomination, regardless of color, regardless of education, regardless of, 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 of your native country, and one of the things that you know if you've got brothers and sisters is that when you have brothers and sisters, they know your flaws. And they're all too happy to tell you about them, aren't they? You see, if you grow up as an only child, you were spoiled. 
But if you grew up with two sisters, they love to tell you about your faults. If you grew up with a large family, you know what it means to have squabbles when you point out your faults. And you see, there's this aspect of family that that's real good. Sometimes teenagers, your teenagers, don't ever ask me who because I keep confidentiality with them just like I do with you. They'll come see me and they'll say, Pastor, what do you think about this? And you see, that's code. Mom and daddy have told me I can't do this. And so I'll say to them, well, what did your mom and daddy say? Well, pastor, I want to know what you think first. I go, no, what did your mom and daddy say? Because the Bible says you're to submit to your parents unless they tell you to do something wrong that is sinful. I said, have they told you to do something wrong or sinful? No. Okay. But they've told you not to do what you're going to ask me? They go, yes. I say, okay, now you can ask me what it is. So they'll tell me, and I say, you got to do what your mom and daddy says. Well, pastor, I thought you would be on my side. I said, I am on your side. But isn't it interesting, even in families, how brothers and sisters sometimes try to get each other on their side, or even sometimes we try to get mom and dad on our side as opposed to the other parent? Have you ever had your children to do that? Now, if you've only had one child, and the only reason you've had one child is because you don't want any more children, you're a coward. You don't know what it means until you've raised three or four children at one time. There was a family in our church that we were helping out one time, and, and sweet children, oh, the sweetest little angels. I picked up their children one day and was carrying them somewhere to help the family out, and I had looked forward to it. I got all three of them in the back seat of the car, buckled up, and suddenly these three sweet children at church turned into three Tasmanian devils in the back seats. I pulled my mirror down and looked at them. I pulled over the side and I said, you guys are so sweet at church. Why are you? I thought I was going to make peace. And they just looked at me and the oldest says, well, at church, Jesus is there. So we have to be nice. Now we're being real. <laughs> you know it's true. And in family... There's an important example to take from this. I want you to look at Hebrews 3.13. I, I want to read to you from the Amplified Bible. And if you've never used the Amplified Bible, I encourage you to get a copy for your, for your home library, for your home library to study the Bible. Because when you see words in parenthesis, these are actual uh, meanings that the word could have. When you see words that are in brackets, these are words that are not in the scripture, but it's just kind of to help you to understand the theological point. So look at this with me, and I'm going to read the whole thing. In Hebrews 3.13, warn, which means admonish, urge, and encourage. To warn means also to encourage, not just to criticize, but to admonish, to urge. Warn one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened in what the means there is hardened into a settled rebellion. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're rebelling by doing something wicked. It means that you've just become hard in your heart towards God. It's what the Ephesians would wrestle with 40 years later after this epistle when Jesus would warn them, you're doing the right things, but you've become hard in your heart. You've lost your first love. Warn and encourage one another every day as long as it's called today so none of you may be hardened into settled rebellion by the deceitfulness of sin, the fraudulence the stratagem, the trickery, which the delusive glamour of sin may play upon him. You see, David prayed one time. He says, Lord, deliver me from my hidden sins. And isn't it true when you stop and think about it? All of us know that there have been times when maybe our wife, maybe even one of our children, maybe somebody in our small group 
has seen something in us and it's caused them concern, it's caused them care. They didn't criticize us. They didn't condemn us. They pulled us alongside and they loved us and they said, I'm seeing something in your life. I'm seeing something that I'm afraid this is happening. And when they encourage us, it's like the book of James says, it's like they hold the word of God up to us and there's a mirror and we see ourselves and we can repent of our sins because if we're not careful, we are deceived by sin. Never forget, I have told you and over and over, you never, ever, ever have to fear the devil. He is a defeated foe. But you need to be very, very wary of sin because sin is very deceitful. A number of years ago, before I became your pastor and I was on the road traveling, I was preaching over 300 times a year. It was pretty heady days. I was preaching at churches that were very, very large. I was preaching for conventions and conferences, not only for the church, but for businesses and organizations. My son made a comment one time at a ball game on a plane floor where he says, my daddy lives on an airplane. I thought I was doing the work of God. I thought I was doing something good. I didn't realize that what was the stress and the strain it was putting on my family. Right across the street from us on Red Oak Drive in Macon, Georgia, there was a retired pastor that lived right across the street and became a good friend, would often help us. And I will never forget the day when Robert walked across the street, an elderly man, and he stopped me in the front yard and he put his arm around me and he said, Dennis, I love you, son. I admire what you're doing, but you are sinning against God and you're sinning against your family. You are not home. Son, if you save the world and you lose your family, you have failed in your ministry. And something about that at first angered me. I thought, Bob, what do you know? You never pastored more than 50 or 60 people. What do you know about what I'm doing and what I've done? And on the way to the Atlanta airport, Suddenly the Holy Spirit crushed me and I realized what kind of pride would make me think about my elder brother in Christ like this. I thought about the kind of sinfulness that was in my heart. And as I flew all the way to California to preach, something just tore up inside of me and I realized I had sinned against the Lord and I had sinned against my wife and my children. But it took somebody loving me enough to put their arms around me to hold a mirror up. That's what brothers and sisters do. We don't condemn, we don't criticize, but we warn and we encourage. And I came back and over and over I thanked Bob for his love for me. My wife thanked Bob because it brought about a huge difference in our life. Understand something. Sin is deceitful. You can take something good and make it bad. You can take something good and you can make it evil. It's why we need small groups. It's why we need relationships. It's why you can't do church on social media. It's why you can't do church on the couch watching church on YouTube. You can't do church on Twitter. There's got to be life lived and shared in the body of Christ where you know one another and you encourage one another, where we pray together in the altar. But you even need more than this. You need a small group. And if you sit there thinking, I don't need a small group, you're the one that the deceitfulness of sin has come about because the early church was not only composed of large meetings like this, it was composed of people meeting house to house and breaking bread together, studying the word of God together, praying together. We need people to do life with. I need you. You need me. We are a family in Christ. Can we give him one more hand of praise this morning? <laughs> Increasing intensity of intimacy, citizenship, Family, God is my father. You are my brother and my sister. But this was the one that began to throw me. We are a holy temple. 
We are carefully joined together in Him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. What does that mean? Because when I think of temple, I think of the Old Testament. I think of the Jewish temple. When I think of a temple, I think of some of these temples to foreign gods that I've visited in other countries. I've wept as I've watched people knelt and worship the Jade Buddha. I've wept as I've watched people worship foreign gods and idolatry. I've wept as I've seen witchcraft and things. And when I think of temples, that tends to what comes to my mind. That veil was rent from top to bottom. That veil in front of the Holy of Holies that when Jesus died and he breathed his last, something so supernatural that the Gospels record it, that that veil, three foot thick, by the way, three foot thick, rent from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies, a place where only the high priest could visit in the presence of the Lord once a year. And suddenly it dawned on me, when that temple was dedicated, maybe you heard me use this phrase early in the service, and you go, what was that? The Shekinah glory of God descended upon that temple. And on the day of Pentecost, what we call the birth of the church, the Shekinah glory of God came. A wind, rushing mighty wind, those tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit descended and inhabited those people. If you've ever watched the movies that were made about the early church, the one that we used, I did a series off of here at the church. You remember how the Holy Spirit came. They depicted the little flames of fire above their heads, and people were praying in the Spirit in a language they'd never heard, like it was in Acts chapter 2, the Shekinah glory of God. It suddenly it dawned on me, increasing intensity of intimacy. We are not just citizens. We are not just children, but God doesn't just invite us to live in his house, but God comes and lives inside of each and every one of us. It doesn't get any more intimate than that. You are a holy habitation. You are a dwelling of the Lord. The Shekinah glory of God dwells in you. God has made us together a habitation for his precious Holy Spirit. We are the body of Christ. Christ in me. Christ in you. Together we have the hope of glory inside of us. No weapon formed against us can prosper. We can show the world the love of Jesus Christ. We can suffer with Christ. We can have victory with Christ. We can walk in all victory because we are not just citizens. We are not just family. God lives inside of us today. Can we give him one more hand of praise? That's why the Bible says that we have authority and power in Christ. Authority and power. The policeman's got the authority to stop me if I'm speeding. But he doesn't have the power to get out of his car and stop my speeding car. My speeding car would run over him in a moment or two. And the devil comes sometimes roaring like an out-of-control locomotive. He comes roaring like a lion into your life. It is one thing to say you have the authority, but it's another thing to have the power. And when God Almighty dwells within you, you not only have the authority, but you have the power to pray for the sick and see them recover. You have the power to cast out devils. You have the power this morning to forgive your enemies. You have the power to love and encourage one another. 
You have the power to love people, whether they look like you or whether they look like my new friend with tattoos all over his face and arms and hands and jangling jewelry out of his skin. You have the power to love because Christ Jesus lives with inside of us. There is increasing intensity of, of, of intimacy as we walk with Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that lights my fire this morning. God is good. God is good. Well, let me close this morning. I must, I must, in order to live like I have just described to you, I must have spiritual heart surgery. I must have spiritual heart surgery. I have been blessed so far in my life to have a good, strong heart. I'm thankful for that. I have gone to many heart surgeries. I've sat with many heart patients. I've talked with a number, I wouldn't say many, but quite a few great heart doctors. I never will forget one day when one of the heart surgeons at the University of Michigan invited me up to his office and explained heart surgery and took a heart apart and then showed me slides and we spent a little over an hour together as he showed me things and just put me in absolute awe of the skill and the talent that he has. I came out of that going, if I ever have to have heart surgery, I don't want a Walmart doctor. I want a good doctor. Nothing against Walmart. I'm willing to buy my toothpaste at Walmart. I'm willing to buy my oatmeal at Walmart. I'll buy my tires at Walmart. But when it comes to my heart, I want somebody that knows what they're doing. Do you know what I'm talking about? If they're going to take a stent and put it up one of my arteries, I want to know that guy has studied at a great school like the University of Michigan, and he knows what he's doing, and he's worked with a skilled surgeon himself, and he's been taught, and he's been mentored. When Becky and I first moved here, one day when the kids were in school, I told her about a man in our church who's also in heaven now, that his grandfather had been the chauffeur to Henry Ford. I said, let's go out to the Ford estate today. I, I just want to know a little bit more about the man. And the docent who took us on a tour and we went back to where the River Rouge was and the power plant that Henry had built for his home back there, he told us an interesting story. And I wrote down as much as I could remember when I got home. I've shared this with you before. But Henry, his first plant that he built, this man, Charlie Steinmetz, had been the one that had designed the power grid and to get everything working. But the plant shut down one day. Henry had been making money. It was pouring into his pockets, and everything went just went smoothly for quite a number of months. And then one day, it just, just ground to a halt. And none of the mechanics could figure out what was wrong with that production line. And so Henry called Charlie, and Charlie finally came, and he showed up. And this is what I wrote down. He fiddled with switches. He punched a gauge or two. He tinkered with a motor. He pushed a few buttons. He messed with a few wires. Now, this, this is just the way the guy was telling it. He messed with a few wires, and then he threw the master switch, and suddenly everything began to work again. The production line went to work. Everything began rolling off. It just took him a few minutes. So when he got back to the East Coast, he sent Henry a bill for $10,000, which is a lot of money in the early 1900s. Wouldn't you agree? That's a lot of money today. Wouldn't you agree? Well, Henry thought it was too much money. So Henry wrote him back and complained. He says, 
it's just too much money for no longer than you were here and for tinkering with a few buttons and a few switches. Charlie wrote him back and says, for tinkering with a few buttons and a few switches, charge is $10. For knowing what to tinker with and what buttons to push, the charge is $9,990. He said, I don't know how long it takes to do a heart surgery. I do know this, in a moment, in a second, your life can be changed by your confession of faith in Christ Jesus. In a moment, your life can be totally changed. You can be reconciled with God and reconciled with others. Your life will change so much that Jesus describes it like being born again. Suddenly you will love people. Suddenly you will be able to forgive. Suddenly you will love God and the things of God that you've never loved before because something is happening inside of your heart. And don't you underestimate the cost and the price tag because it maybe just takes a prayer or it maybe just takes a moment because what Jesus did for you at Calvary was the plan of the ages. It was the mystery of God. The ultimate price was paid so that in a twinkling of an eye, your life can be change when God does the heart surgery upon you and I and we are born again by the blood of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Can somebody praise him for that this morning? <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Ephesians 2 and verse 14, for Christ himself has brought peace to us who united Jews and Gentiles into one body, in his own body on the Christ and he cross and he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Now, how did he do that? He did this by ending the system of the law with his commandments and regulations. Do you remember when I told you you can take something good and make something bad out of it? There's nothing bad about the law. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. He fulfilled the ceremonial, the sacrificial, and he gives us new life so that we can live out the spirit of the law, which is to know God to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love each other as we love ourselves. This is what sums up the law Jesus said. You see, if we're not careful, we can take our education, which is a good thing. You can take your race, which is a good thing. God loves your race. You can take your gender, which is a good thing. You can take marriage and family, sex, money, whatever it is, good things that God has blessed you with, and you can make it evil, or you can submit it to God and let God do what he wanted to do through the Jewish people with the law, and that was be a light to the Gentiles. I want the Gentiles to see how you're living, God said in Deuteronomy, so they'll be attracted to me, so they'll be attracted to my glory. But they took the law and looked at everybody else as though they were unclean, as though they were worse than dogs, as though they were profane. When God touches you, it doesn't matter what people look like. Everybody, everybody is the creative act of the genius and love of God. Jew, Gentile, red, yellow, black, or white. So what do we do with this this morning? Ephesians 4 and 23 and 24, and then I just want to walk you with how we can apply this. Your hearts and minds must be completely new, made completely new. You must put on the new self, 
which is created in God's likeness and reveals itself in the true life that is upright and holy. Romans 15, 13, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. And then, unlike before, when you didn't know God and you had no hope, what does life really mean if you don't have God? What does life mean if you die and go to hell? What does life mean if you suffer in eternity without Christ? And even if you reject what the Bible says, even if you reject it and say, I refuse to believe it, sir, just listen for a moment. What does life mean if all you do is live selfishly, going for all the gusto you can get, and then you're put in a hole in the ground, six foot under, for your body to rot and your memory forgotten? It's not true, but that's why there's no hope. But your heart can overflow with joy and peace and confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. What do you do? Number one, worship the Lord daily. Get on your knees. Lift your hands to Him. Say, I've never done that. It's time. By your bed, with your children. Sir, ma'am, let your children grow up with your arms around them, praying with them, loving them. Let them have memories in your household of dad praying, mom praying. Let them hear you pray if you're worried about the mortgage, if you're worried about something. Let them hear you giving all of that to God and then tell them the stories of how God answers prayer. Let them hear you loving Him. Say, Pastor, do you kneel daily? Absolutely. As I've told you over and over, kneeling reminds me of who God is and who I really am. Kneeling reminds me of who God is and who I really am. Secondly, search your heart today. Don't just take this message and go home and put the notes and file it away. But get before the Lord and say, Lord, is there any hardness in my heart? Are you as close to Jesus as you once used to be? Do you love Him like you once used to love Him? Is your heart aflame with a love for God? Search for hardness. And if it's not, pray, Lord, fill me with your spirit again. I want to love you with a pure, white-hot love. I want to be a passionate follower of Christ. Thirdly, I'm just warning you, beware of the deception of sin. Be a part of a group where you can encourage and you can be encouraged. I will always be thankful for Robert. I'll always be thankful for people in my life, my prayer partners, that pray with me weekly, ask me the tough questions. Dennis, did you tell a lie this week? Dennis, were you faithful with your tithes this week? Were you faithful with your money? Dennis, did you lust after anybody this week? Dennis, did you treat Becky and love her the way Christ loved the church? Dennis, did you love your children? Did you call them? Did you call your grandchildren? Dennis, did you read your Bible, chapter and verse, please? Those people who ask me those tough questions, and then that final question, Dennis, have you lied to me in this conversation? 
You see, I'm fully aware. I can take something good and make something bad out of it. Learn to share your story. I will never forget walking into that Starbucks and meeting this kid and saying, Jesus, there's a fresh one. Help me to witness to him. And he starts witnessing to me. I'm telling you, I'm so glad somebody taught that kid how to share his story. I'm so glad somebody loved him enough to reach him for Jesus Christ. And I'm so glad that God taught me the power of your story and my story. Be a part of a small group. I've talked about that a lot. And then finally, if not at Woodland, commit to being a part of a local believing Bible preaching church. There are great churches in our community. If you don't feel at home here, I hope you do. I hope you feel loved and welcome. I'll tell you what I told the first service this morning. I hope you feel loved. I hope you feel, I hope you walk out of this place dripping with love today. If somebody didn't shake your hand or hug your neck, you call me and you tell me who it was and I'll get on to them. You come see me at that back door. I want to hug your neck. I want to love you. But you see, I'm going to hug you differently than I hug my wife. You're going to thank God for that. I'm going to hug you differently than I hug my daughter because I hug Amy and Becky totally different. Amy knows how to be treated because when she wants to talk to me, I mute the football game and I really hate to mute a football game. By the way, did you watch the Georgia game yesterday? Wasn't that grand? Oh, I think that's why I feel so good this morning. You see, in this church, we hug, we embrace, we're a family. You need a family. You need a family in the body of Christ, of believers that you can do life with. So I want you to stand with me. I'm going to pray, and then we'll receive our offering. I love you, Jesus, and I am so thankful for the church. And Lord, I hope that nothing that I've said has reflected poorly upon a church that chooses to use a lot of symbolism and ceremonialism. It's not been my intention to cast a stone. But Lord, what I want for Woodland more than anything else is you. I want you, Jesus, manifested in our presence and in our hearts and lives. I want for people who don't know you as their personal Lord and Savior to sense your presence and to acknowledge what you have done for them and to commit their lives to you. And if that's you, would you just pray this prayer quietly? Christians all around this room are praying with me right now, but would you pray this prayer just quietly? Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for taking what I deserved. Father, thank you for giving me what Jesus deserved. And that's all the blessings of heaven. Thank you for being willing to adopt me as your son or daughter. To give me peace with other people. Forgive me of my sins. And as much as I know how, I commit my life to you today. While no one's looking around but just myself, if you prayed that, will you lift up your hand? God bless you. God bless you, sir. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you. Thank you. Church, let's give the Lord a hand of praise for these that have prayed this morning. Hallelujah.